How would you like to sit down and talk with someone who, as a young man, personally walked and talked with Jesus for over three years, then continued to live for the Lord for another 50 to 60 years? Wouldn't it be a thrilling experience to talk with someone like that? The man I have in mind is obviously no longer around, so we can't sit down and talk with him. But he did write five books that are still in print today, and one of them is the book that will occupy our attention in the weeks ahead. It is called First John. Please turn with me in your Bible over near the end of the New Testament to the little letter known as First John. Late in his life, somewhere around A.D. 85, the beloved Apostle John sat down to write his children, as he refers to his audience in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 18, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 18, and then in chapter 5, verse 21. With the heart of a shepherd, he warned them, he encouraged them, he challenged them, and he instructed them. John specified at least five purposes for this letter. To propagate fellowship, to produce joy, to prevent sin, to protect from deception, and to provide assurance. I want us to look at each of these individually as we begin to get a feel for this powerful little letter of the New Testament. Number one, this letter was written to propagate fellowship. John specifically states that. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship in the New Testament, means common. And it refers to the common life that we as believers share in Jesus Christ. Oftentimes you will hear Christians use the word fellowship to refer to eating a meal together or drinking coffee together. But that's not what the word means. Now those times may be occasions for fellowship. But simply eating together or drinking coffee together does not constitute fellowship. Biblical fellowship is sharing together our common life in Christ. Biblical fellowship is sharing together from the foundation of our mutual life in Christ. So one of John's purposes in this letter that he specifically states was to share spiritual truth with these believers for the purpose of providing a richer atmosphere for true Christian fellowship. Number two, this letter was written to produce joy. Look at the very next verse, verse 4. He says, And these things we write to you that your joy or our joy may be full. There is no greater joy in life than intimately knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing His life with one another. There is no deeper joy than that. There is no more profound joy than that. And John understood that. So he wrote this letter to enrich our fellowship 
And in the process, he knew that would result in true, deep, lasting joy. You want to be a joyful person? Then absorb, digest the message of 1 John. Number three, this letter was written to prevent sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. John realized that even though we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as believers, if we belong to Him, we are still susceptible to sin. We are still vulnerable. So he wrote to exhort his readers and us not to give in to sin. Resist sin, says John. It is a serious issue. It has consequences. Many times those consequences are devastating. So resist sin. That was a major part of his message here in this letter. Fourthly, this letter was written to protect from deception. Skip down to verse 26 of this second chapter. Chapter 2, verse 26, he says very specifically, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. The people to whom John was writing were being bombarded by false teachers whose message sounded so appealing and so convincing. They used Christian words and Christian terminology. But their words had different meanings and different definitions than what the Word of God teaches. This is often the way error is propagated under the umbrella of Christendom. Religious groups, Christian, and I put the term in quotes, Christian churches and groups use Christian terminology, Christian words, but they have different meanings and different definitions. The deception John warned against later became known as Gnosticism, or doceticism. The Gnostic heresy basically had two doctrines. Number one, knowledge is more important than ethics or morality. In other words, it doesn't matter how you live or what you do. It doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as you have the secret knowledge the Gnostics claim to possess. That was one of their cornerstone or pillar doctrines, the Gnostics. Secondly, number two, the Gnostics taught that matter is inherently evil or material substance of any kind. Anything solid, metal or wood or anything or even flesh, bones, matter is inherently evil. And therefore, Christ really did not take on human flesh. According to their doctrine, he could not have or he would have participated in evil. Because of this, the Gnostics also taught that the human Jesus and the Spirit being Christ were not one and the same. They divided Jesus up into the human Jesus, the Spirit being Christ, two separate entities or two separate persons. They taught that the Spirit being Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism when the, the, the heavenly dove descended, but departed prior to his crucifixion. Doceticism is from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem. This was the teaching that Christ only seemed to have a human body. He didn't really have a human body. He could not have, according to the docetics or the Gnostics, because he would have participated in evil. He only seemed to have a human body. 
John warns his readers about these heresies by teaching that true fellowship is with God the Father through the God-man Jesus Christ. He also taught that it does matter how you live. It does matter what you do with your body because sin is a reality. It's, it's not just a concept. It is a reality and often has devastating results. In fact, as we'll see later, he also taught that the person who claims to be a Christian but continually lives in sin as an unbroken pattern is not really a Christian at all. So John wrote to protect from deception. Number five, this letter was written to provide assurance. Skip over to chapter five where we have another purpose statement by John. Chapter five, verse 13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is one of John's specific goals in writing this letter, to provide assurance. How can you be assured of the fact that you have eternal life and you are headed to heaven? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have the Lord Jesus Christ in your life as your personal Lord and Savior? In verse 12, John said, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's that simple. If the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning in your heart and in your life, then you can have the assurance that you have eternal life. You don't have to adopt a wait-and-see attitude. Well, I hope I'm going to heaven. We'll, just see, we'll have to wait and see. You know, when I die, hopefully that's where I end up. No, you can know for sure. In fact, God wants us to know for sure. One of the reasons why God wants us to know for sure is because there is no greater atmosphere for spiritual growth and development than the atmosphere of security and assurance. Parents, surely you see this with your, your own children. When they have the assurance of your love, they are secure. That doesn't mean they won't misbehave. It doesn't mean that they won't act up, that they won't sin. We are all prone to sin and to do wrong and to disobey. But the atmosphere for growth and development is so much better when it is in an atmosphere of security and assurance. So John wrote this letter to provide assurance. Those are his five stated purposes. One, to propagate fellowship. Two, to produce joy. Three, to prevent sin. Four, to protect from deception. And five, to provide assurance. And we'll see each of those coming to the surface at various times as we work our way through this letter, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. Now the plan for this message, this introductory message, is simply to survey the book or the letter in its entirety. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. I don't want us to to just jump into the detail and fail to see the big picture. So we're going to do a survey this morning of the letter in its entirety. And as we do, ask the Spirit of God to teach you what He would have you learn. And let's ask the Spirit of God to prompt us to make changes where we need to make changes in our lives. So back up to chapter 1, and we'll simply do a survey or an overview of this tremendous little letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. This reminds us of the way John opened his gospel, the gospel of John. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who became incarnate as the living Word of God. And here in verse 1, John states that he was an eyewitness of this living Word, the Lord Jesus. John was probably somewhere between the age of 20 and 23 when Jesus called him to be an apostle. That would be at the latest, maybe even late teens. What a thrill it must have been for him at such a young age to follow Jesus around for three years. And during that time, as Jesus uh, performed his ministry, John looked, he listened, he heard, he saw, he touched. And during that time, Jesus transformed his life. John would no longer be content with his fishing business. He gave his life to the cause of Christ. He ended up being a teammate in the ministry with Peter throughout the book of Acts. John was in his early 20s when Jesus called him. He was in his 70s or 80s, maybe even 90s, when he wrote this letter. For 60-some years, he thought about and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then one day, the Spirit of God instructed him to pick up his pen. And John was given the tremendous privilege of writing this book of inspired Scripture. So he says in verse 1, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I was there, I heard, I saw, I touched. I am an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he says, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You can almost feel the excitement in these verses. It's as if John could not get over the fact that he was granted the privilege of seeing and spending time with the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did John see and hear from the Lord Jesus? What did he observe? What did he take from that eyewitness experience? Verse 5, he says this, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Later in this letter, John will say that God is love. But he begins by saying that God is light. God is holy. God is pure. That's the starting point in our theology, beloved. The angels of God cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They don't cry out, Love, 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 or grace, grace, grace. God is the God of love. God is the God of mercy. He is a God of grace. But his overarching attribute is his holiness. So that's where John begins. God is holy. John understood that in a greater way as he observed the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, therefore he concluded this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is what I mentioned earlier. John taught that the person who claims to be a Christian but continually lives in sin as an unbroken pattern is not really a Christian at all. That's not to say that we stop sinning when we become Christians. We all know better than that. Right? Any, every one of us here in this room who is honest, everyone knows that even when you become a Christian, you don't stop sinning. We do slip into sin. But as new creations in Christ, we are not in darkness. We are in light. We walk in the light, but there are times when we fall into sin. So John says in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And with that, John comes to one of his stated purposes. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children... These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What a great verse. John doesn't say, if anyone sins, he loses his salvation. No. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have a helper. We have a mediator. We have an intercessor. We have a defense attorney. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is perfectly and totally righteous. Therefore, he satisfies all of God's righteous demands for us, as John says in verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation means satisfaction. The Lord Jesus Christ satisfies all of God's righteous demands for us. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, but we don't presume upon that. In fact, those of us who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ hate to sin. We hate to sin. That's why John makes the next statement, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Those of us who truly know Christ demonstrate that by our lives. Now it's not that we are perfect, not by any means. There's always room for growth and improvement because the standard is the sinless and perfect Lord Jesus. So John says in verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That's the goal of every Christian, or at least it should be, to live like, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. These first six verses of chapter 2 states several themes of John's teaching throughout the book. Let me mention them in summary here because we'll see them coming to the surface several times. Number one, one of the themes presented here is this. As Christians, we are not sinless or perfect in this life. We do slip. We do fall. We do fail. Secondly, true Christians, however, do not live a life of complete disobedience in an unbroken pattern of sin. 
If someone lives like that and claims to be a Christian, he is deceiving himself. Number three, a third theme here in these first six verses is there is great assurance of salvation for Christians who are seeking to obey the Lord and live for Him. God doesn't give anyone the gift of salvation as a result of obedience, but God does give the gift of assurance to those who are living in obedience. Did you catch that distinction? Let me say that again. Listen closely. God doesn't give anyone the gift of salvation as a result of obedience. That would be work salvation. Scripture is completely against that. God doesn't give anyone the gift of salvation as a result of obedience. But God does graciously give the gift of assurance to those who are living in obedience. That is why Sometimes a true Christian, someone who truly knows the Lord, but is living in a disobedience, will find that he or she lacks assurance. He or she begins to question his or her salvation. Why? Because God is not going to grant the gift of assurance to someone who's living in disobedience to him. And that's one of the reasons why John exhorts his children to live for the Lord. He says down in verse 15 of this second chapter, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Is it possible for a Christian to fall in love with the world? Sure it is. The difference is this, however. The Christian struggles with loving the world, but the non-Christian doesn't even struggle. In other words, the Christian realizes that he or she must guard his heart, must be careful to not place too much uh, affection or appreciation on things in this world because this world is transient, we're passing through, this is not our home, etc. The true Christian understands that, but it's a struggle. It's very easy to be drawn into the world. The non-Christian doesn't struggle. The non-Christian just loves this world. This is home. This is what the non-Christian loves. Now, the non-Christian might hang around the church for a while, but eventually he bails out because of his love for the world. That's why John adds verse 19. He says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they, might, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. What John is saying here is this. Continuance is the test of reality. Those who are real and genuine prove it over the long haul. But that doesn't mean that there aren't struggles along the way. That doesn't mean there aren't lapses along the way. That's one of the reasons why John was writing this letter. He knew that believers can stumble. He knew that believers can fall. He knew that believers can be led astray. But God has graciously given us His Holy Spirit to enable us to be able to discern between truth and error. And that's what John means by the next verse, verse 20. He says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know... 
He says something similar down in verse 27. He says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things that, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. What is John saying in these two verses? Verses 20 and 27 are two verses that have been very confusing to many Christians through the years. What is John saying? Let me begin by what he is not saying. John is not saying that they are omniscient. That would be ridiculous to say, you know everything you could possibly know. Everything about science, history, math, the Bible, theology. No, he's not saying they're omniscient. He's not saying they don't need any more spiritual instruction. After all, he was writing to instruct them. If they knew everything, why even write the letter? No, in the context, John is saying God has graciously given us His Holy Spirit to enable us to be able to discern between truth and error. God has equipped us to be able to live for Him, and therefore we should live for Him. So he says in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Do you realize that some Christians are not going to be living for the Lord like they ought to be when he returns, and therefore they are going to be ashamed? That's what this verse is saying. That there will be Christians living in such a way, or maybe the very moment Jesus descends from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, maybe at that very moment they are doing something they should not be doing, and then all of a sudden there they are standing face to face before the Savior. And John says here in verse 28, they're going to be ashamed. Are you going to be one of those? If you need to make some changes in your life, make them now. Because Jesus is coming back. John says in chapter 3, verse 3, he says this, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have your hope fixed on the return of the Lord Jesus, then that has a purifying effect in your life. So ask yourself the question, do I live in light of the return of Christ? Do I live in such a way that I'm ready? Do I live in such a way that if he came at a certain time, I would be really ashamed? Am I living, anticipating his any moment return? We should. After all, this world is not our real home. We're, we're just passing through. We are different than those who do not know Christ. John says in verse 6 of this third chapter, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not practice sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot practice sin, for he is because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Don't let these verses confuse you. John is not saying that Christians don't sin. He already made that clear back in chapter 1. In fact, he says, if you claim to be a Christian who says you never sin, you're deceiving yourself. John is not saying that Christians don't sin. He is referring to habitual, ongoing, unbroken sin. 
Habitual actions indicate one's character. The life of the Christian is characterized by love and obedience. The non-Christian's life is not. That's what John is saying. So down in verse 14 of this third chapter, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. One of the strongest pieces of evidence that we have been saved, that we have been born again, that we have been brought into the family of God is our love for other believers. That is not natural. Non-Christians don't just naturally love Christians. Our love for other believers is God-given. When we are saved, when we are born again, God infuses into our character, into our hearts, into our being a love for Him and a love for other believers. So when God exhorts us to love one another in the family of God, He is not asking us to do something contrary to our new nature. He has provided the incentive, the motivation, the wherewithal to be able to do that. And so in verse 16, John says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue only, but in deed and in truth. Our lives should be characterized by love as believers. However, however, that doesn't mean we should be characterized by sloppy sentimentalism. Too many Christians confuse love and sloppy sentimentalism. It's imperative that we also be discerning. So right off, coming right off of this chapter, notice what John says in chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything that you're taught, even if it's in the name of Christianity. But test the spirits whether they have God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And I remind you, beloved, false prophets do not wear a placard that says, I am a false prophet. They claim to be a true prophet. They claim to represent the Lord. And John says, many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. That text is a call for discernment. It's extremely important that we exhibit both love and discernment. Love and discernment are sort of the, the two banks that keep the river flowing well and, and protect from destruction when one bank or the other is removed. It's extremely important that we exhibit both love and discernment. Verse 7 of this chapter says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. As Dr. Ryrie states in his study Bible footnote, this is one of John's greatest passages. Undoubtedly. Love is the hallmark of our lives. Love for God, love for Christ, love for one another, love for God's truth. Our lives should be marked by love. And it's all because God first loved us. Skip down to verse 19. He says, we love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. John continues this theme as he begins to wind down his letter in chapter 5. Notice verse 1. He says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Isn't that a neat statement? Let your mind dwell on that statement for just a moment. His commandments are not burdensome. When you love the Lord, when you truly love the Lord, it's not a grievous thing to you to obey Him. It's not the type of attitude, oh, there's another command. I can't do that. I have to do this. No, when you love the Lord, it's not a grievous thing to obey Him. You love to obey Him. You love to live for Him. You love being in His family. You love being on His team. After all, his team is the winning team. There's no doubt about it. Verse 4 says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, those who are united with Christ, we are overcomers. We are victors. The word overcomer here is the Greek word nike, from which we get our English word nike. It means victor, overcomer, winner. In Christ, we are all nikes. We are all victors. We are all overcomers. And we can be certain of our future victory over death. So John says in verse 11, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Listen, there is nothing more precious Nothing more valuable, nothing more meaningful, nothing more important than knowing you have eternal life. Would you agree? And beloved, we can know. We should know. We should know with absolute certainty where we stand with the Lord. 
Do you have the Son of God in your life? That's the issue that these verses talk about. Do you have the Son of God in your life? I do. I don't say that to brag. It's not because of any good in me. But the Word of God says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by God's grace, I have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has taken up residence in my life. That's what John is talking about here. You want to have certainty? You want to have assurance? Then make sure the Son of God is in your life. And he says in verse 20, as he closes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. That says it as well as it can be said. It reminds us of Jesus' statement in His great high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, when He said, This is eternal life, praying to the Father, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Jesus was saying, those who know you, Father, those who know me, have eternal life. And once we have come to know the true God, we shouldn't allow anything to become a substitute for him. Nothing. That's why John closes the letter the way he does in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. We should guard our relationship with the Lord so that we don't allow anything to become more important than He is in our lives. Anything that becomes more important is an idol. Do you have any idols in your life? Are there things in your life that are more important than the Lord? Are there people in your life that are more important than the Lord? Are there goals and projects in your life that are more important than the Lord? Do you have some idols in your life? If you do, lay them at the foot of the cross right now as we bow together in closing prayer. Let's please bow together. I encourage you as we close this morning to bow your head and close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement around you. And think about that question. Don't dismiss it quickly. Don't dismiss it lightly. Don't say, well, this is the 21st century and uh, we, don't have, you know, we don't have a problem with pieces of wood or clay as idols. No, maybe our idols don't look the same as they did back then. But don't you dare believe that we no longer struggle with idolatry. That's why John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I ask you again, and as I do, I encourage you to search your heart. Better yet, ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. Do you have any idols in your life? Really think about that. Are there things in your life that are more important than the Lord? Or are there people in your life that are more important than the Lord? Are there goals or projects in your life that are more important than the Lord? You see, we're all susceptible to idolatry. Otherwise, this verse would not be in the Bible. We're all susceptible. So as the Spirit of God probes our hearts, if He points to something that we need to hold with an open hand, I encourage you to do that. Just open your fist 
open-handed and say, Lord, I lay this before you. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ personally, you don't have eternal life. We've seen that very clearly this morning. If you don't know him, that's not to say to know of him. If you do not know him personally, genuinely, you do not have eternal life. But you can receive him this morning. You can come to know him personally. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him right now. In the quietness of your own heart, right there where you are seated. Just call on the Lord. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to be forgiven. I want to have eternal life. I want to follow you. Come into my life. Help me to know you, to trust you, to believe in you. That is the pathway to eternal life. Father, thank you for this time together, surveying this brief but powerful little letter of the New Testament. Thank you for your grace in the life of the Apostle John. What a story to think of him as a young man following Jesus around for three years, observing Jesus, listening to what he said, watching what he did, being impacted by his life and his teaching, his actions, his heart, and then himself teaching about the Lord Jesus for some 50, 60, maybe even 70 years. And then near the end of his life, being granted the privilege of sitting down to write a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for John's life, his legacy, his message to us in this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in the days and weeks and months that come as we immerse ourselves in the verse-by-verse consideration of this powerful book, may it transform our lives. May we, like the Apostle John, be captivated by the Lord Jesus and his truth. So be pleased to use what we have seen this morning from your word to impact our lives, to touch our lives. And we would especially pray for anyone who is present with us who does not know your son Jesus Christ personally, genuinely. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction, understanding, clarity, so that right this very moment, he or she would surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who do know him, may we take heed to the exhortation to keep ourselves from idols. What a battle that is. We have to always, regularly be looking at our lives, looking at our hearts, looking at our affections to see if anything is creeping in to take the place of the Lord Jesus. We don't want that. We don't want that in our lives. Strengthen us to see that and to deal with it accordingly as we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.